Hello everyone, it's June 26th, 2018. Ben is back from vacation, which included a tour of Blue Origin and I Am Jealous. In other less important news, progress is being made on NASA's Deep Space Gateway. Okay, I guess that is more important than a walking tour and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 164 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. How you doing, David? All right. Uh, welcome back. So how was the vacation? Oh, it was so good. We we ate lots and lots of food. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad you had a good vacation. Uh, welcome back. And I guess we should move on to this week in spaceflight history, and you can explain uh, the debacle that happened, perhaps. So, uh, But I guess, first off, who are our winners for this week? All right. Our winners this week are Neeraj Sharma and Chubby Turkosi. So uh, a, a new name and an old name. Great. Uh, or not new, but, you know, like second or third guess. Um, all right. So you came up with a really great clue for this week, a regrettable start. And you said that the clue literally had the name in it. Well, I said that the clue literally had uh, the answer somewhere in yeah. there or something to that effect. But no one yeah. pointed that out. But uh, I'm so bummed that nobody got this because this is seriously, I think this might be the best clue that has ever uh, been done on this show and i'm very very proud of you for coming up with this so a regrettable start so june 29th 1961 thor abel star uh, launched and the abel star upper stage exploded becoming the first unintended space debris in history so obviously that's regrettable and it's a start but abel star is <laughs> yeah a regret able star to regret able star to so good okay so thor able star uh was launching transit 4a um transit 4a is a navy navigation satellite and it's pretty cool because it was the first satellite with an rtg on board and as kind of a long distance side note transit 4b launched later um, it also had an rtg um, but it was one of the few satellites that was destroyed in the starfish prime uh nuclear explosion in low earth orbit uh, but transit 4a was okay um, also on board were two other smaller satellites which were flown coupled together so they were going to be uh, jettisoned from the able star coupled together and then they were supposed to separate and that didn't happen but in any event Able Star successfully deployed its payloads. It had a successful mission. And then I don't know how long after separation, but 77 minutes after orbital insertion, the Able Star exploded. And boy, did it explode. So at the time, there were 54 objects in space. Able Star exploded into about 300 large pieces. So that would be pieces over 10 centimeters. And of course, these pieces went all over the place. Some of them were flung out with enough velocity that their apoapsis actually went above 2,000 kilometers. So a pretty wide range of debris was blasted into orbit. To this day, about 60% of those large pieces are still in orbit just a huge explosion and you know of course this is one of hundreds now so one of the one of the sources that's attached here is a, a google books link um, that goes to sky alert when satellites fail by les johnson um, and so a lot of the the information that i'm talking about here is coming directly from that book it's a good book so uh, what caused the Able Star explosion? Well, like most explosions, we don't know for sure. There are a number of possible answers, but there's one that really sticks out as being the most potentially uh, reasonable uh, explanation. And that is 
uh, a breach of the common bulkhead between the propellant tanks. So the propellants used were UDMH and IRFNA. Uh, UDMH is, oh boy, let me see if I can do this without notes, unsymmetric dimethylhydrazine. Yep. And IRFNA is uh, foaming nitric acid, red foaming nitric acid, and the I is like inhibited. Thank you, Sam Moore in the chat. Inhibited red foaming nitric acid. So uh, hypergolic propellants that are super nasty. And basically they were both in their own pressurized tanks and the tanks abutted each other and they had a common bulkhead, um, which is is a pretty common practice. It's a good way to uh, reduce the length of your rocket and reduce the mass by a bit. So the oxygen tank was convex on all sides, right? It, It looked like a pill. The fuel tank had concave at one end and then was convex at that common bulkhead. So the common bulkhead arced up into the fuel tank. And so what happens is if the oxidizer tank loses pressure, that bulkhead will invert and pop out, as it were. And that pop is enough to to rupture the common bulkhead. And that means that you, instead of having a fuel tank and an oxidizer tank, you now have a gigantic combustion chamber uh, that has fuel and oxidizer in the same place, which is real bad. And that's that's identified as being the most likely cause. Now, there are a number of things that point to that as being the correct answer. And chief amongst them is the fact that all other Able Star missions vented the fuel as part of the satellite deployment sequence. And in this case, they didn't want to contaminate, uh, I'm assuming the Transit 4A, you know, because it's kind of a delicate Navy satellite that you want to be careful around. So they didn't vent. And then since the fuel pressure was high, it actually only took like, I think, 30 PSI, a, a drop of 30 PSI in the fuel tank to be low enough that it could pop out like that. That's many thousands of pounds of pressure. So yeah. But they were they were pressurized to like 200 psi. So so percentage wise, it's not a very large drop, is what I'm I saying. suppose. But if the pressure was going in the other direction, then it was intended. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're pushing on the on the wrong side of that arch or or of that uh, concavity. So anyway, um, I looked for reasons why the oxidizer pressure would drop by so much compared to the fuel, and I couldn't find any in Sky Alert. Um, they mentioned that there were five potential ways for the pressure to do this, but uh, they didn't mention them and I couldn't find the report that they were referencing. So I guess I kind of got to leave everybody on a, on a low point here. Yeah. The mystery remains, maybe with some forensic investigation of those bits left in orbit. <laughs> Probably not likely, but that'd be cool. Yeah, not not likely. And interestingly enough, this is actually one of the best documented explosions in space. Um, we had several cameras watching uh, watching these vehicles, you know, because at that point it was multiple vehicles in close proximity. Um, we had multiple cameras actually taking not just telemetry, like radio data, like actually getting visual visual photos of the vehicles. So I, I think that they're pretty confident in their in their decision at this point. You know, one day there'll be a hobbyist who goes around and collects all these pieces and assembles them and you know, does some analysis and finds out that it was something else, who knows? Quite possibly. So what is our clue that is applicable 
to next week's answer. What is our clue for next week? All right. Next week in 2011, the clue is Apple's first satellite. Apple's first satellite. And it's only 2011. So that's not too long ago. But I still don't know. Uh, but if you think you know, give us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Yep. And this is this is actually Apple Computer. I'm not, it's not like Beatles or anything. Beatles? Uh, the, the Beatles recording company is Apple Music. NASA releases a BAA for Gateway's power and propulsion element. All right, so what is a BAA? That is a broad agency announcement. And I assume that it's pronounced BAA, right? Or BAA possibly, but not... not <laughs> bah! Not, not like... All right, everybody, we have a bah for you. <laughs> yeah, so this bah, um, this is in search of proposals from industry for a first module for the gateways or what was called uh, Deep Space Gateway. And I, I don't know if they changed the name, but I'm only seeing it referred to as Gateway now. I don't know if they still call it Deep Space Gateway, but the Deep Space Gateway's first, I guess you could say core module, which is the power and propulsion element module. So power propulsion, as well as communication, I believe. So NASA is looking for some industry partners to help them with this. We have a PDF, which I don't think I have a link to, but we can provide that, I imagine. Um, just uh, going directly from that, uh, here's some requirements that they have. And I think that these are kind of interesting, but they are all to be revised, which is what TBR means. And I did have to look that up. So yeah, thanks, NASA. The requirements are to demonstrate continuous long-term operation of this system sufficient to predict the xenon throughput capability and lifetime of the solar electric propulsion system. So yeah, this is going to be using a xenon solar electric propulsion system. And uh, there are some reasons why they specifically want that, which I think are pretty obvious to spaceflight enthusiasts. And they want a power to mass ratio of 100 watts per kilogram, although that is to be revised, so that might change, and a stowed volume of 40 kilowatts per cubic meter, which also is going to be revised or might be revised, and a deployed strength of 0.1, and I imagine this is G's or is this grams? Because I'm not sure what that G is in reference to. Deployed strength of 0.1 G, it says, lowercase g which makes me think of Graham, not G-loads. It was not a very good PDF. There's actually some huge typos if you look at the original, and I kind of had to fix it. Yeah, it, it's got to be a, a, tenth of a, a tenth of a G, but that's also assuming the mass of the rest of the vehicle. Um, I can't imagine they'd be okay with a tenth of a gram of thrust. That's, that's super, super. I mean, like, you know, ion drives are, are not, you know, super high thrust. Well, I think that they might have requirements of one tenth of a G for other reasons, just for the structural integrity. Oh, deployed strength. So yeah, so maybe they're saying that you can, apl you can apply a tenth of a G to these, uh, to these solar panels and they'll be okay. That makes sense. That makes right. a lot of sense. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm happy yeah. with that. Again, this is TBR to be revised, so they might lower that by quite a bit. Doesn't that, doesn't that mean that, though, that they could land on the surface of the moon and be okay? Like, isn't the lunar surface gravity a tenth of a G? No, it's a little bit more than that. I think it's one, is it one sixth okay. or one ninth? I can never remember, but almost. Um, and then one of the other requirements is just to characterize the space high power next generation EP string. And um, what that is, is uh, the electric propulsion, the whole system. Um, and that has to perform at greater than 12.5 kilowatts for, I guess, some extended period of time. I don't know how long 
I guess it depends on the solar panels. This is mostly just for station keeping and for changing orbits, surprisingly, which uh, might be for some other uses. I don't think that the Deep Space Gateway, that they're planning on moving it into lunar orbit. As far as I know, they're going to keep it in cislunar orbit, but they did stress that they might be using this particular technology to change orbits and to do some other various, you know, very interesting things, and maybe also for use in Mars orbit. So much of this is TBR to be revised, so it looks like they're giving them some kind of vague idea of what they need, but they're not really specifying. It's also expected to provide high-rate, reliable communications between Earth and deep space for both spacewalks and possibly even activities on the moon. So if you're out doing a spacewalk or a moonwalk, that will be your hub there. So this is, you know, sort of asking a lot of this one particular module, and that will be launched in 2022. So that's not too far from now what is that just like four that's like four or five years and that will be flown on em2 i'm really wondering if they'll have an actual proposal and a built prototype ready to go or a test demonstrator i really wonder about that because 2022 seems not too far away for something being done in cooperation with nasa like when you have that kind of partnership going on i don't think things really happen that quickly well luckily this is this is pretty much all demonstrated technology to begin with i mean you know we can we can do better than 12.5 kilowatts Watts with a solar array we can you know we've been doing electropropulsion for a long time so but yeah I, I i think you're right i don't think it's super likely that it's going to happen in 2022 although you bring up a good point though that yeah i mean this is all pretty straightforward so maybe it is possible it's just that i'm kind of afraid that nasa will get in the way they tend to do that they kind of get in their own way well when they get in the way they're they're usually getting in the way in the name of excellence you know like if something's going well they keep their hands off but if something needs revisions then they're going to step in pretty quick but yeah there you have it time to do some short and sweet we got two of them and what's our first one? First up the last falcon 9 block 4 prepares for flight so after the first block 5 launched back in may we've been waiting through lots of block 4 expendable launches as spacex uses up all of their remaining stock of return boosters a static fire of block 4 booster b1045 this week happened right on time and this booster will be sending dragon crs 15 up to iss and ending spacex's experience experimental landing era. From here on out, only the super reusable Block 5 will be used. Mm -hmm. So long, Block 4. And next up, uh, business time will have to wait. Rocket Lab's third mission, It's Business Time, was scheduled to fly this week, but was delayed due to a faulty tracking slash uplink dish. They shipped in replacement parts and fixed the issue in time for their next launch window, but the weather predictions were so bad that they decided to slip to the next window after that. We're recording this on Sunday, and the next attempt is on Monday, so this is another case where our listeners know more than we do good luck electron so yeah if this is already flown i guess this is all <laughs> academic as they say but uh i hope that they launched successfully if not we'll have something to talk about next week so no questions comments and corrections so we're just going to move on to upcoming spaceflight events we just got one launch and then one other thing to mention so what's our first upcoming spaceflight event it's a falcon 9 actually isn't it yeah so it's uh falcon 9 full thrust the Last Block 4 flying CRS-15. I really am looking forward to this one because they're replacing one of the latching end effectors on Canarm 2, which is going to be pretty cool. You guys know that I love my robotic arms. So this is flying on June 29th at 0941 hours UTC. And then next up, uh, Nefa in our chat actually linked us to or informed us of a very cool talk that is being given by Jeffrey A. Hoffman uh, at his, I guess it's, uh, what is it, Delft University or Delft or the, what's yeah, it called? TU Delft. TU Delft. So Jeffrey Hoffman was one of the people who had worked on the Space Telescope 
or the Hubble Space Telescope repair. And I guess, I don't know if it was the actual initial deployment because I'm not too familiar with him. The first person I think of is uh, Massimino, but obviously right. there were several other people involved. Yeah, yeah. I think I think for some reason Mass is first in my mind too, but but Jeff Hoffman also worked on it. Um, he specifically flew on STS-61, which was one of the repair mission. So his his talk is entitled The Hubble Space Telescope, What Went Wrong, How We Fixed It, and Its Great Discoveries, which I think is a great title for a talk. Yeah. I'm hoping that this will be recorded and maybe broadcast at some point. It's broadcast live and we'll have a link to uh collegearama.tudelf.nl in the in the show notes. So you can watch it live. Um, did you want to mention what time the talk happens? That's on the 26th of June at 2000 to 2200. And that is... That's that's Delft time. So that's GMT plus two. Yeah. So if you want to convert that to UTC, that's what? 18 to 20? Yeah. So 18 to 20 or one o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, I think. And then finally, we have uh, Rendezvous and Capture of Dragon CRS-15. That's happening on July 2nd, which is Monday, right, right before our next show. Coverage is supposed to begin at 5.30 and then Captured is scheduled at 7 a.m. And then coverage of installation is scheduled to begin at 9 a.m. They don't have an installation time, but pretty close. But yeah, there, there you go. That, that's going to be a good week of, of watching things happen. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's do up at the show and cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the everyday astronaut. If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher. And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the ground control chat room listening to the show live you can connect with us on twitter and reddit at orbital podcast you can send questions and comments to info at the for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies all right so that's it and we will see you in one week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody Bye.